It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We just came in from a nice walk outside. It is beautiful out. Beautiful day. Late October, about 70 degrees. One of those days where you wake up in the morning, a little bit cold outside, afternoon's warm, evening cold. Love it. Perfect weather. Yeah, it's good for your marathon training. That's right. Half marathon training. Yeah. Only half is cool. <laughs> only half is cool and only half the run and only half the training. But we have some hopeful news this week. Really exciting news. So we're recording on Wednesday because you're taking a little trip this weekend. I am. And yesterday the speaker said on the House floor that he expected votes on the budget as early as next week. Then today... Governor Cooper held a COVID press conference, and in that press conference, he said, we mostly have agreement. I think we're close to the end. There are a couple things that we're working out, but I think we're almost there. So, I mean, a chance. We're not saying that this is going to happen. So you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance. (laughs) I, I might be too optimistic here, but there's a chance we could see a budget next week and see the votes that come on the budget and could have something at the governor's desk by Friday, Saturday. But then again, we might be doing redistricting next week and they're finalizing the budget. Who knows? I heard that there was a breakfast this past week. They had quiche. Yeah, last Friday. Last Friday. So they had breakfast together and just proving the point, maybe sometimes people just need to get together and share a meal together and talk and work things out. Yes, as many of our guests have outlined. Yes, yeah, maybe some of those wands came through. Billy Richardson, I think one of his 10 wands was they need to sit down (laughs) and eat together. The other wand was take him to dinner. Yeah, someone suggested that maybe he was just hungry when he came on the podcast. (laughs) Okay, but I, I am excited about this. This would be our first full conventional budget Since 2018, we have had lots of budgets pass the General Assembly. They get vetoed. But this is an opportunity, I believe, for the state to move forward. And I'm so excited because this had to happen through talking, through compromise, and at the end of the day, bipartisanship. So we've covered this a few times that the House session has been once a week so there's one day a week, everybody goes down to the GA, lobbyists, House members. The Senate's kind of in and out. They're not having votes every week like the House is. So yesterday was that designated day for a vote. And so everyone comes into Raleigh and caucus right before session appears that it went a little off kilter. And the speaker said that there were going to be too many amendments to the one bill that was on the calendar. Mm. And so the bill was pulled. And so actually session just became like some, you know, personal privileges. Yeah. So I put on my best suit yesterday and, um, very slimming. Yeah. Very slimming. (laughs) It's my slimming suit. I call it. Oh, do you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that was a waste and I have to now iron another shirt this Sunday. So that's kind of a bummer. Why was that a waste? You still saw people. That's true. That's how I rate my outfits. By who you see? Just like if you don't see anybody, you could wear it again, you know? Oh yeah, I do that too. Yeah, but you only have like three suits, so what's it matter? (laughs) (laughs) All right, so moving on. 
I have 10 suits, but only three fit. Let's be oh, honest I'm here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to pay me. <laughs> we did see folks yesterday, and that was good. We had a lot of visits. I think we had five legislative visits yesterday, which was good and great to be in the building. But one of the things that sticks out when you have these votes and it's just one bill, we're talking to representatives that come from as far away as Haywood County, as far away as the Outer Banks. And can you imagine making that drive? It's a five and a half hour drive for some of these folks. And then you get to the building, you go to caucus, and then, okay, we'll pull the bill. Let's just have notices and announcements, and then we adjourn. That's got to be disappointing. Yeah, it would be really frustrating I don't even like the drive to Winston-Salem. I think it's too far. Mm -hmm. So the drive all the way across the state and back would kill me, but I'm not a public official. So So the bill may be heard next week. It may be heard the week after. And with the number of amendments, there was a time crunch on the timeline because they did have a three o'clock redistricting meeting for a public hearing. I think there was even some fundraisers in districts that I saw the leadership at last night on social media. These debates can get prolonged, especially when you have amendments. So the Election Integrity Act will likely see before session adjourns. And that will be controversial. So the speaker did expect for there not only to be amendments, but probably a good amount of debate on the bill as well. Speaking of controversial, we kind of touched on this subject last week. There is a new representative Donnie Loftus, who is going to take the seat of Representative Dana Baumgartner, who died a few weeks back. He was an appointee by the executive committee. We kind of talked about this and what the role of the governor is. And you asked the question, well, why do we need the governor? So we had a listener actually send us the statute. And we're not going to get into all the stuff about Representative Loftus. We just say that there is a rumor going around the General Assembly that maybe the governor is not going to formally appoint Representative Select Donnie Loftus. If he doesn't make the appointment, the statute's very clear, right, Sky? Yes, the statute is clear and specifically says if the governor fails to make the appointment within the required period, he shall be presumed to have made the appointment and the legislature or to which the appointee was recommended, shall seat the member. So essentially, the governor doesn't have to make this appointment. By not making the appointment, he is making the appointment. It's sort of akin to not signing a bill within the designated 10-day period. It just becomes law. So we expect to see Representative Select Donnie Loftus seated next week. He will be sworn in and he will be the newest member to the General Assembly, specifically the House of Representatives. Our guest this week is Representative Ricky Hurtado from Alamance County. That was a really hard fought race and I think one that folks will be watching in next year's race as well it's gonna remain contentious and a close race and he talked to us about how that affected him and his coming ups as well as some of the media attention he got from that race the do politics better podcast is supported by the north carolina travel industry association founded in 1955 nctia has a distinguished history of partnering with the north carolina general assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. 
Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Ricky Hurtado, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. If you could just kick us off, where is your district? What makes your district special? What do you love about North Carolina and your district? Well, I will start with the line every representative uses and that my district is representative of North Carolina and its diversity. I'm in Alamance County, District 63, and I do believe it is a unique place in the sense of emblematic of the trends and the tensions and everything we feel across North Carolina and quite frankly, the nation. When you think about places like Mebane, Burlington and Graham and the growing downtown areas uh, in terms of revitalization and a growing community. At the Northeast corner, you have the Okanichi tribe of the Saponi nation and historical African-American neighborhoods that have lived there for generations. And then you have a place like Graham, which has been, it feels like the center of the universe and when it comes to both uh, hopeful stories of a growing community and what's happening downtown, but also a lot of clashes with protests, Black Lives Matter protesters, the Confederate Monument, the conversation around an old Alamance and a new Alamance. And so, yeah, all of that is just captured in Alamance County. But but I do think that overall we have a community that wants to be better. Mm -hmm. And I hear that from both sides of the aisle. I've spent most of my time the last... 10 months really meeting folks that are not in my immediate community. And that's what you hear, that they really believe that Alamance County is heading in the right direction and they want to figure out how they can be a part of the solution. You were born in Los Angeles. How did you end up in Alamance County? Uh, certainly not Tar Heel born, but certainly Tar Heel bred. Of course, so. <laughs> of course, of course. Been in North Carolina since about seven years old. But I do begin to tell this story, and I told this story many times on the campaign trail and when I'm first meeting folks. It starts with my parents, and it starts in L.A., because my parents fled a civil war in El Salvador in 1980. Central America, right before the Central the Civil War broke out, and this was about six months before Archbishop Romero was assassinated for mm. history buffs listening, and my parents were 20 years old. Wow. They were, my dad was about to go off to college. He really wanted to go to the Army and, and become an engineer, and my mom was trying to make decisions on whether she was going to go to college or not. But 20 years old, war's breaking out and you have to make a decision. And so my grandma, the matriarch of the family, made a tough decision to flee the country and to take her family with her. And my dad, being my dad, said, well, when do we leave? And so he dropped out of college and decided to come with, with my mom to, to, be, to stay together. And so that journey led them from El Salvador to LA to Los Angeles where they lived came to this country did not ask questions they lived in the shadows so they, they were undocumented for several years because when your house is on fire you figure out how you survive and you leave right yeah. very different era right and, and this was also around the time where half a million people came to the United States fleeing this war mm -hmm. uh, and so we think of things like modern-day Syria or even Afghanistan now it is that sort of situation to put into context and in the mid-80s, President Ronald Reagan and Congress was able to come up with what has been our last comprehensive immigration reform. That gave my parents a pathway to citizenship and put them on a pathway to safety, peace of mind, and prosperity, and, and for, an opportunity for them to live their version of the American dream. And so at seven years old, that dream was no longer attainable in LA, and my parents decided to sell everything and drive across the country. It was a seven-day trip. I still remember the 
brown station wagon that we drove from LA to to Sanford, North Carolina. And so, and the the reason we moved to Sanford was because my dad's best friend growing up in El Salvador made that trip before him and pretty much said, it's really green out here. I can get you a job. And so that's all it took to convince my dad to move out here. And what was important for us was that growing up in LA, I was also really sick with asthma. And so that made it really difficult to sort of live in a big city with full of pollution. And so that that's part of the reason why environmental issues have become such an important part of my life because the value of clean air and clean water is something that I experience every day going to sleep with a respirator every night and having to get two shots for all the allergies that I had because of my asthma. And so, so yeah, that's how someone like me lands in Sanford, North Carolina. Fast forward through some of that story though is grew up in our public school system in rural North Carolina in Sanford. Uh, public school teachers played a huge role in my life. It, public education changed my life. We were a working class family, living paycheck to paycheck, just trying to figure out how to make ends meet and what does it mean for a Latino family, immigrant family in small town North Carolina to be a part of that community? So yeah, became a first generation college student, went to Carolina, and then was really interested in understanding the challenges that I faced as a child. And so before you get to that, you didn't just go to Carolina, right? <laughs> you went on a, a little scholarship, a little scholarship, a little uh, well-known scholarship, I guess you could yeah. call it. I, I became a Moorhead Kane scholar. Yeah. And that completely changed my life. An exceptional student, is that fair to say, coming up in Sanford? Yeah, I was competitive. Yeah. And so, and, but that competitiveness didn't kick in for me until high school. I mean, I started ninth grade in high school, and I remember someone telling, talking to me about GPA. I was like, what's GPA? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and began to realize that there was a correlation between how well I did in my classes and the ability of someone after high school to pay for my school. Mm-hmm. Amazing. <laughs> I, how that yeah, works, right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, someone will pay for me to go to college? Mm-hmm. I was yeah. like, let me figure that out. And so the captain of the soccer team at the time, Joseph Briggs, got the Park Scholarship to go to NC State. And okay. I was like, I want to do what that guy did. Okay. And so I just sort of put my nose down to the grindstone and tried to figure it out. And three years later, was able to, to, to become one of the the candidates to be nominated to get the Moorhead Kane scholarship and and really that scholarship really focuses on well-roundedness and so they force you to play sports (laughs) you have to be athletic not athletic but be active uh and really have sort of a a curiosity to to the unknown and so yeah it was it was a great opportunity for me to to explore life beyond Sanford and Lee County your soccer player did you play soccer in high school is was I don't know what (laughs) I I just went out and played in Mebane uh on Sunday and I was limping to your office so (laughs) can't say I'm in great shape anymore how was that with your asthma so I mean that's part of the the transformation personally for me coming to North Carolina I went from being in LA being on a respirator every night uh getting shots two shots a day to moving to North Carolina and in middle school, I mean, literally the, the, the grass was greener, was able to live the life of, of a normal, healthy kid. And it really is remarkable the, the night and day change in our lives because it was a constant source of anxiety for my mom and dad. Remember mom waking up constantly, coming to sleep beside me at night. And yeah, that wasn't any longer a worry once we moved to North Carolina. And so to be able to go from that to then be a part of the soccer team in middle school and high school was really transformative for us. Yeah. So I interrupted you. You get to Carolina. Carolina for me was a, a hard experience. I wasn't one of those kids that, 
immediately thrived. Uh, you know, I suffered from, you know, what we call now imposter syndrome, really question whether I belong there. You compare yourself to the other Moorhead Cane kids and some were off interning at the White House. One was trying to cure cancer in high school. And for me growing up, I worked two jobs in high school. I worked at the dump because that's my, my dad works at waste management and drives a garbage truck. And so I've been working every day since I turned 16 and worked at a local hospital filing x-rays for them after school. And so between that and soccer, you know, I was trying to pay for my SAT exams and, and just any other expenses that any normal high school kid has and having the awareness that I didn't want to put that burden on my parents because they're already struggling making ends meet. And so, you know, work was sort of on and off with my mom, work second shift. When she was working, I'd have to pick her up at midnight to, to, to make sure that, you know, she had a ride home because she doesn't drive. And so all of those things sort of really put me in a place where I was trying to figure out what that meant for me in college. And so what path that led me down to though was understanding that these were not immigrant challenges these were working class North Carolina challenges these are American challenges and so that was an eye-opening experience for me in college but certainly wasn't an easy path to to get to that realization when you were in college were you interested in policy how did you become interested in policy and I believe you also went to Princeton right I went to Princeton after a few years of working after Carolina but I share this story about policy and politics when I was an undergrad. The first election I voted on, voted in was in 2008. Okay. So the, the first election President Obama was, was elected in. And I barely voted because I, I wasn't engaged politically. Politics was not a part of my life. And I remember someone in the pit just pulled me over and said, it's early voting, you need to go vote. And I was like, okay, sure. This is what college students are doing. Let me go vote. And the night President Obama won, Franklin Street looked like we had just beat Duke. But I was in my dorm room asleep because it, it didn't mean much to me, and I wasn't engaged politically in, in that festivity. And so I go from there to really beginning to think about by 2012, by the time I graduate, what does it mean for us to, to connect the issues that my family was facing and the issues that I saw many of my peers facing to politics and policy. So it actually took me a long time to, to connect the dots. When did it click for you that maybe you should run for office one day? There was a few aha moments. One of them was probably around the time I met you, Brian. Okay. Uh, Stepping foot in the General Assembly for the first time, talking about college affordability issues, Mm -hmm. issues of DACA, Mm -hmm. and and how that impacts students in North Carolina. And DACA, for listeners, is deferred action for childhood arrivals. These are kids who were brought here, and they were given this status by executive order by President Obama. Coming to the General Assembly and and recognizing that as we were having these conversations, I felt like surely if elected officials heard the stories of my students and and even my own journey of being a first-generation college student, that we may be able to change some hearts and minds. And I think we've had some good conversations on this topic and many other topics of access to higher education. But I remember leaving frustrated with many of the conversations where I felt like I wasn't being heard. And quite frankly, that my story and the struggles of many working class folks weren't necessarily represented in the makeup of the General Assembly. And so that's when I first started thinking about it. Fast forward three years later, I think it was in 2018, we had a Moorhead Cane. Um, They have alumni reunions. And it was either 2018 or 2019, I forget. But 
Roy Cooper was the Governor Cooper was the keynote, and he pretty much told all of us, "Y'all, everybody needs to run for office." And so mm-hmm. I was like, "Well, there we go." <laughs> okay, so, so Governor Cooper inspired. Yeah, you, right? inspired me, and, and was just inspired by the more I met policymakers in North Carolina as to what it meant to truly love the place that you grew up in, and I think part of that is is getting involved politically, and so that that's only half of the story. The other half of the story is. Well, the, the maps and, you know, where you live and all that have to align. And, you know, the woman who became my wife happened to grow up and live in the most competitive house district in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so once we got married, moved to Alamance County, and the rest is history. Let's talk a little bit about your race. It was elevated pretty quickly to be one of the most competitive races in the General Assembly. I believe you won by like 477 votes. And it got a lot of attention. What was your strategy during the election? And how was that from becoming just a citizen working to someone that people knew? I think my strategy in many ways was to ignore a lot of the advice that I was getting. And what I mean by that is I had this urge to just be myself. I grew up in a small town in Sanford where... Half of my friends voted for Trump at this point, right? And I, they, I still consider them dear friends. Grew up in a really different environment where in on the weekends, I was probably playing basketball and football with my friends in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Then would ride my bike up the road a mile and shoot skeet with my best friend on his you know 200-acre family farm. And all of those experiences have shaped the person that I am today. I am a product of North Carolina, of rural North Carolina, and all of its people. And... I love that. And and I think that going into the race in Alamance County, that is the part that I wanted to put forward around the in this moment where it feels like we're as divided as we've ever been. And depending on where you grew up or what you look like or what you sound like, you're supposed to fall in certain camps. And I think I was determined to surprise people, to mm-hmm. let you know that we could connect on a fundamental human level and talk about issues that probably matter to you and me. And I think that's what's needed right now in this moment in politics. And I think that was what's needed in Alamance County, where in a moment where a lot of people were frustrated for a number of reasons, I kept hearing over and over and over how trust was broken in our political process and how we just didn't feel like we were being heard. For whatever the reason, just people do not hear us. And so I went out and listened. And there wasn't any people want to make a big deal about what we did in Alamance County. And it was a tough race and it was very close. And People want to say it's a new playbook or something, but I I would argue that it's actually the old playbook. Mm. Let's get back to fundamentals. What does it mean to actually do the retail politicking where we're talking to people and meeting them where they are? And that's what we did. We we did it a lot. I mean, I'll give our team credit. We were out canvassing during the primary, even though we didn't have a primary. We were on doors every weekend, made tens of thousands of phone calls into the district and just had conversations. And so that's what we wanted to do. And if we didn't win with that approach, then maybe I didn't want to win. I I do think that I am looking for something different in our political moment. And I think that in competitive races like Alamance County is an opportunity to to actually do that. The media that has covered you and your race, and it's been Rolling Stone magazine, it's been national media, it's been local media, it's cast as uh, Ricky Hurtado, the Latino candidate from Alamance County. It sounds to me like you're saying you happen to be Latino, but you're talking about jobs, education, good roads, safety, all of those things, getting back to the blocking and tackling of politics. 
Oh, but absolutely. Okay. That is 1,000% what we talked about the entire campaign. Okay. Did you find a sort of tension between those headlines and like your face being out there everywhere, media frenzy, and people meeting you and having some assumptions about who you are and what you stood for? Oh, every day. And it still exists, right? And, and I think it's something I tell my students, too. I still work in education, and I talk to them about the danger of a single story. And all of us have such complicated life stories and our motivations as why we serve. And I would hope that people are curious enough to get to know me as to understand that I can both be passionate about my parents' immigration story and the students that I work with every day and why I believe they need a shot in North Carolina and why we need comprehensive immigration reform nationally, but also what it means for all of us to feel proud to be North Carolinians and to want to invest in a place like Alamance County and all of us call it home. I get into debates on both sides of the aisle right now because this message is is not very popular in on both sides of the aisle at the moment around what does it mean to be a bridge builder and to bring our communities together but at the end of the day if we're going to serve if our democracy is going to survive at a place like Alamance County is going to find peace in how we do business and and how we support each other as we think about what you know, how we improve educational outcomes. The demographics have shifted. A lot of people want to talk about shifting demographics as if active. That's happened. Mm-hmm. You could close the borders to North Carolina right now. And what's happened over the last de- few decades has already transformed who lives here and who's going to grow up here. We're going to have to learn to to coexist and, and even like each other, <laughs> dare I say. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that is the opportunity that we being the children of immigrants have where we have grown up being both a product of our family's culture and eating tacos or pupusas depending on what culture you're from but also loving our barbecue right mm-hmm. and, and and being a part of that sort of fusion of what north carolina is and, and where it's heading in the future so let's fast forward to you are now in the general assembly how's it going for you <laughs> it's been a lot of fun and and i say that because I think what's got me to this point is my competitive nature, which sure you get to sort of flex during campaigns, but also my curiosity. Mm. And I have really enjoyed having the excuse to get to know folks from the other side of the aisle. And I see them often in, I've been a part of a number of leadership forums or, or places where are they're trying to encourage bipartisan conversation. And to hear the thoughtful questions people ask when the cameras are off and you're not on the microphone on the floor, is really refreshing. And we were just having these conversations around higher education the last two days. A lot of us are taking part in a, in a cohort opportunity to talk about higher ed. And people were genuinely curious around housing insecurity, homelessness, hunger, asking why. And that will never make the headline of your local paper. But it was really nice to hear and even be able to talk to folks and say, hey, I appreciated that comment. And this is what I think about that. And the follow-up to that being, let's keep talking about it. Let's have dinner. Right. And so I think that that has been the beauty of the last 10 months beyond the votes, beyond what's happening in the building is the opportunity to try to do politics better. I'm going to ask you to take your democratic party label off for a second and talk about the community, the immigrant community in North Carolina, the political diversity and ideology of that community. There is an opportunity for the Latino community to change the future of politics in North Carolina, but not necessarily for any given party. My parents should be Republican. 
very conservative values, very religious, and very much hold a immigrant mentality that I think is reflective of perhaps some of what they experience back at home in, in their own home countries. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of really interesting developments here in the next 10 and 20 years as we think about a growing community that will be registering Democrat, Republican, Independent, and, and complicate the narratives that we like to tell about communities. Yeah. And so absolutely, I think that you're right when you say that there is an incredible diversity in the Latino community. And, you know, it's it's often difficult to find a clear narrative that brings all of us together because it is an incredibly diverse community. It's up to the parties to say, hey, come to us. And I think the last time we saw that on a grand scale was President George W. Bush, who was running for governor in Texas in 1994, had been a Democratic uh, state for so long, but he put together a coalition of, of Latino voters, of white voters, black voters, and, and won that seat. And, and I think that gets lost sometimes 20 some years later. Yeah. I mean, I think the future of politics will require a multiracial coalition to, to win elections now. And that's for the Democratic Party and for the Republican Party. And so I think the party that does it better here in the next decade or two, I think will have a, a brighter future. So going back to you saying that there is this tension between policy and politics, and you also mentioned the divisiveness in our politics today. If you could change one thing with your magic wand, what would your magic wand be? I was worried I wasn't going to have a magic wand because I remember, I think Billy stole our yeah, magic like wands. Yeah, like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and so I'm going to... Maybe go with one and a half, two here, if you you can follow me. I think it's actually accountability of our elected officials in the General Assembly. And what I mean by that is, tis the season, right? So we have to talk about redistricting and and what that means for for fair maps in, in North Carolina. But I think in general, right, I won't get into the politics of it necessarily, but I think we're doing our nation a disservice as we see this arms race across the country Democrats wanting to draw maps for Democrats, Republicans for Republicans, I think we all lose in this scenario. And and so I am very worried as to what not having competitive districts means for future policymaking. I think competitive districts make us better legislators. They make us more honest legislators. They force us to compromise and they keep us busy in our districts, right? I'm responding to emails from both sides of the aisle making sure I'm touching base with constituents to make sure that I am doing my job as a representative. And so I think that's like the first half of the accountability equation for me in terms of the magic wand. I think the second part is the current era of mis and disinformation in our society and the need to use that magic wand to bring back our local newspapers. Like it's, I know it's a complicated, complex industry and and why it is in decline, but the number of bills that people back at home follow versus everything that we do here in the general assembly there's such a disconnect and it feels like you're yelling into the void sometimes this is some of the things that i feel like people should truly care about that they're missing out on and i think part of that is because we don't have thriving local papers anymore that also keep us accountable as we think about knowing that this vote is going to show up in the next morning in the local paper i'm sure we see that with our statewide papers, but not everyone reads the news and observe it, right? When I first started working at the General Assembly, Alamance County had a reporter dedicated to following 
the delegation there. His name is Barry Smith. He now works for Department of Insurance. He's the public information officer. But that was his only job. He worked for the Times News, and he followed Alice Bortson, Carrie Allred, and Hugh Webster. And that's all he covered. Times have changed. Yeah. Well, Representative Ricky Hurtado, we appreciate everything you do for your district, everything you do for the state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Representative Hurtado is such a thoughtful person. You can tell in our interview, we're asking him questions about his childhood and going to college and kind of coming of of age, I guess, politically. To hear him really think about his answers and really dig deep on those answers, his political philosophy, it was really interesting to just hear him reveal who he is. After sitting with him for a bit we kept having more questions for him and it was easy to see how he got so much national attention and he had a lot of eyes on him kind of a viral candidate if you will it was easy to see how folks kind of grabbed onto his story because he is so thoughtful and is so interesting to talk to tweet of the week tweet of the week the tweet of the week this week is from ap dylan um a reporter for north state journal it's at ap dylan underscore on twitter so today cooper held a covid press conference and so this is about that it says governor cooper is holding a covid briefing in about 10 minutes this is his 129th covid briefing and today is day 596 of the statewide emergency order And that is becoming more and more of an issue. I see online a lot of messaging this week from Republican legislators about the Emergency Powers Act that we talked about last week on the podcast. That's still on the governor's desk, correct? That's right. Expecting a veto any any moment now? Yeah. When did they send that over last week? Yeah, sent it over last week. So by the time this podcast drops on Friday we could have a veto of that bill. Yeah. It just really encompasses how long we have been in the COVID emergency. And you remember when Governor Cooper was holding those press conferences, you watched all of them, like what is happening, update our clients. And now it's just kind of like, oh, there's another COVID press conference. Like when are we going to get rid of masks, by the way? You know, like that kind of. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It seems like just ages ago, and I mean, since then we've had Mike Sprayberry, the emergency management director. He he has retired, yeah, and does feel in many ways like it is a still a bad dream in some ways, but in other ways, I feel like no, we're not under an, an emergency anymore. We're back to some normal things like. Remember when we were talking about how there were only like 10 or 15 chairs in every committee, so you had to get there 30 minutes early? That's back to normal. Uh, You know, folks at sporting events, back to normal-ish. And the state fair came back, 
And I think that the state fair numbers were a little lower than in 2019, but still good for being in a pandemic. And we're not doing proxy voting anymore. That's been really good. Yeah. Although we're still dialing into committees. We have legislators who dial into the committees. Hopefully we get back to normal with that soon. I really do miss seeing committees full. You have three or four legislators at the table and then five legislators up on the screen and those five legislators sometimes just, I don't know, just doesn't feel like it's as engaging as it used to be. I should say it is kind of interesting or funny sometimes in rules when like Chairman Hall will call for a vote or something and then the folks in the room will vote and then like there's like a three second delay and then you hear someone (laughs) yell. Yeah. So tomorrow, Thursday, you're heading to New York and you're gonna go to a show? Yeah, I'm going to see my daughter, Isabel. She's up at Sarah Lawrence College in New York. I haven't seen her since I dropped her off the weekend of Labor Day. Tomorrow, I get to set eyes on her, and we're going to hang out in the city. Got a little Airbnb in Brooklyn, and we're going to go see Tina, the musical. It's been fun talking to my daughter about that. She is 18 years old, so Tina Turner isn't exactly one of the current singers, but she has enjoyed doing a deep dive. I've sent her some documentaries and some YouTube videos of Tina and Ike Turner, and I'm just looking forward to, to hanging out with my daughter, and I'm going to return in time for Halloween, because you know it's Halloween weekend. What are you dressing up as for Halloween this year? Nothing, but I do live in Oakwood. If you are familiar with the Raleigh Halloween scene, you know that Oakwood is the spot for Halloween walking the neighborhood the that one house back in oakwood that they just go all out i'm pretty sure they're hoarders but whatever and just like a cool little walk through the neighborhood will be fun and there are always a lot of trick-or-treaters at my door are you one that you go inside wait for the doorbell to ring or do you set up shop out on your stoop and ready for the trick-or-treaters so i've only lived there for two years but in 2019 It was actually the last day of session was Halloween. And when I was going home, I started going down my street and realized, oh no, it's Halloween. So I looped back around to the DGX to get some candy and then back onto Person Street and sat outside with my neighbors. Okay. So that's what I did in 2019. In 2020, I put a bowl of candy out and some Lysol spray because I I don't know what the protocol really was last year. So... Um, I share a walkway with the townhome above me. So I have a new neighbor this year. I haven't asked him what he wants to do, but generally I sit outside with my neighbors that we share the walkway, we share candy, you know, it's kind of a joint effort. Okay. All right. So are the kids as creative in their costumes as your neighborhood is in decorating houses? I would say that we're a go-to, Oakwood is a go-to spot for trick-or-treaters so you get all kinds of kids uh you'll see people pull up there and you know if you're given the choice to go to like the fancy houses or the townhomes you probably want to go to the fancy houses with like the good candy versus me (laughs) but um we still get a good amount of people well i hope you have a happy halloween this year our neighborhood we didn't have many trick-or-treaters last year but because of COVID, I'm hoping this year we it, we have a comeback because we've got a lot of candy 
on our kitchen table that Julie bought the other day. I have yet to get into it. I'm proud to say. Wow. Yeah. No midnight eating of that candy? Yeah, no midnight eating of it. So (laughs) I've been very disciplined about that. I'm looking forward to giving every last piece away in Cary in our neighborhood. Looking forward to it. Love Halloween. Love, you know, just seeing the kids. And if anything, I miss when our kids were small and a lot of fun. And Halloween's a great holiday. Well, I'll be sad to be without you for a couple of days, but excited to hear about your adventures in New York. And hopefully you'll take the graduation gift I got for Isabel five months ago (laughs) with you. I will. I'll take that along with, I'm also taking a lot of uh, two winter coats for because it's getting cold up in New York. I hope you have a great weekend, great Halloween. I think I'm going on a ghost tour, actually. Wow. All right. Living big. That is it for this week. We hope that you have a great Halloween weekend. However you spend it, whatever you do. Remember to do politics better. We were excited about session yesterday. You Why are we excited about session yesterday? I mean, we got all dressed up. <laughs> Some of us get dressed up every day. We don't just wear a sweatshirt and call it a day. <laughs> 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 but somehow you're the one who gives fashion advice on what I wear.